Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California colleges and universities saw a big decline in enrollments this past spring, when many administrators were hoping students who had held off enrolling last fall would come back. Instead, campuses across the country saw a 5% drop in enrollments from a year ago, with California doing a little worse than the national average due to declines in community college enrollments. As California reopens, we talk with college administrators about the prospect of many of these students coming back by fall and what could happen if they don't. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Student enrollments at universities and community colleges this past spring dropped by more than 120,000 students in California, a more than 5% decrease from a year ago, according to the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, crushing some administrators' hopes of a rebound from a disappointing fall 2020 enrollment season. That loss is being felt, especially at community colleges and small private schools that were already facing enrollment declines and tight budgets before the pandemic. Joining me now is Falon Serna, Vice President for Enrollment Management at Whittier College, a private college in Southern California. Falon Serna, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be on. First, can you tell us about Whittier College and its student body? Sure. We are a liberal arts college with a student population, undergraduate population of about 1,700 students. There's also a uh, master's of education program that exists that typically has about 80 or so students. And uh, we're in Whittier, California, which if the listeners are not familiar, we're really nestled in between uh, downtown Los Angeles and we like to say downtown Disney in Orange <laughs> County. So it's a suburb area. Um, we're, we're known for a handful of things. Um, we have a quirky mascot. We're home of the poets. Um, we, we are known for having a, uh, intimate, uh, academic setting where, where students get a lot of attention from faculty. They get to know their peers really well. Um, and, and that just gives a great academic mm -hmm. experience. Our classes are all like 20 students or less. And then we're also noted for having, um, a good amount of diversity. Um, we're a Hispanic serving institution, uh, which means we're well over 30% of our population, um, identifies as Hispanic or Latinx. And we were recently recognized for our commitment to diversity um, by the McKenzie Scott Foundation. We received a $12 million gift um, this past year, uh, which was the largest in the, in the school's history. And we were one of 
only like two or three schools that were not historically black colleges, uh, universities, hmm. or tribal institutions that were part of that grant. So. Well, congrats on that. That's great. I I'm yeah. curious, though, what was enrollment like for you in the fall and, and then the spring, too? Yeah, you know, we certainly had some challenges, as as many know. Um, well, I'll start by saying Whittier's student population is typically about 70% of students are from the state of California. So we're primarily in state. And as we all know, our state was really hit hard by the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, financially, a lot of the, the ways people make money in the state, whether it's the gig economy, hospitality, entertainment, all of that really suffered. And, and I think we, we felt the effects of that. And so, um, and then on top of that, you know, students come to Whittier because they're looking for that, as I mentioned, that intimate personal experience. And when we had to make the decision to go virtual, um, a lot of students, even if they could afford it, decided that they may want to delay their, their time because they didn't want to, um, you know, go to Whittier if it was going to be all virtual. So, so but the, the combination of the two really mm. um, impacted, um, it certainly impacted our new student enrollment. We had a really small class come in starting in the fall of 2020. And we had some attrition with, with some of our returning students, like I said, whether it was for them not wanting to be virtual or if them or their families were dealing with financial issues. Um, something else about Whittier is we do serve a high percentage of students who come from low income backgrounds. And as we know, that vulnerable population was, was also really hit particularly hard due to the pandemic. So a number of students um, having to choose to help the family save money or take a break from college to help their families uh, financially support their families by picking up a job. So it's was, it was just, it was a really yeah. tough time. Um, like I'm sure many, we, we were just, you know, impacted hard by the, 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 um, the, the pandemic. And so you had a, a smaller incoming class, as you say, by a couple hundred students, you had attrition as well. What kind right. of pressure does that put on a school like Whittier College? Yeah, I mean, I mean, tremendous. We are a tuition driven institution, which means the the, you know, the the operating funds and budget all come from the money we make off of tuition. Um, in addition, we were also really hurt because we, we also make revenues off of student housing. So about 70% of our students uh, will live on campus. And, um, you know, we, we lost all of that revenue as well. So even for the students who we were able to retain and, and, um, you know, go to school with us this past year, we didn't have anyone on campus. And so we lost a ton of revenue there. And so it just puts a lot of pressure on our on our budgets. Um, and, and, you know, we're already working with really thin margins anyway. And so when something like this happens, it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, we unfortunately had to, to do some layoffs really early on in the mm -hmm. pandemic. And um, for, for a while, we, we had to do some temporary salary cuts. And, and um, fortunately, now that we're kind of getting on the other side of this and things are, are, are turning back up and we're expecting to be fully in person, uh, we're able to kind of rectify some of those. But it was definitely, it's been a tough year uh, for us, for sure. A tough year. And I actually want to bring David Scobie into the conversation, Director of Bringing Theory to Practice, which is a national initiative that works to renew the core purpose of undergraduate education. David Scobie, thanks so much for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So what we're hearing from Falone Serena at Whittier, what Whittier experienced, it sounds like a lot of colleges experienced across the nation, especially this past spring with undergraduates. Could you just paint the national picture for us and how significantly different it was from previous years? 
Sure, I'd be happy to. And let me first begin by congratulating Whittier and Falone for the great commitment to equity and inclusion and also that grant. That's really wonderful. Um, nationally, we know that many of the themes that Falone already stated are true. Uh, the, the pandemic uh, put a hit into enrollment uh, nationally, but unevenly so. Uh, some more better resourced institutions, institutions that could conserve their budgets and financial aid, did comparatively uh, better. Mm. Institutions that served more working class students, low income students, students of color, often uh, had, had uh, worse outcomes because those students ha- had to work, couldn't necessarily afford uh, the, to, the tuition to continue. Uh, and that same inequality among different kinds of students also characterized different kinds of institutions. As you mentioned at the start, community colleges uh, fared worst of all. In fact, their incline, uh, enrollment declines were much, much worse than the four-year sector and especially the, the four-year private sector. Uh, and then the last thing uh, I would say nationally it, is that the pandemic and the economic crisis uh, made it particularly hard for non-traditional students to return to college or to to start college. Uh, By that, I mean not only older students, but students who work, who parent, whose lives make it hard to center their studies as their primary role in life. Hmm. They're often doing essential worker uh, jobs in the pandemic. Um, and that group is the kind of unsung majority of American undergraduates. So conditions that stressed them and made it harder for them to, to go back to school also had, a, had an outsized uh, impact on college enrollments. That's interesting. So you're, we're hearing that basically undergraduates, 18 to 22, 24-year-olds or so, there were significant declines in enrollment in the fall and it didn't rebound in the spring. You're also talking about these so-called non-traditional students. What proportion would you say of the undergraduate class they are? Because I think stereotypically, a lot of people see undergrads as sort of fresh out of high school. You're exactly right. Our, our conventional image of the, of the college student is a recent high school grad attending uh, college full-time And even if they have to work, no matter their economic background, somehow being able to kind of organize college life around their role as a student, that's uh, far from the majority of American college students. There are as many undergraduates who are parents as there are undergraduates who fit that description. Uh, 40% of college students work more than half time Uh, more than 40% attend college part-time. So across a whole bunch of factors, uh, the majority of students don't fit into that conventional image. And that means they're having to juggle not only challenges uh, of financing college, but also time and role between work and, and often family. The other thing that I was struck by is that we were seeing more students enroll in graduate school whereas undergraduate enrollment was falling. Why does that concern you, David Scobie? Uh, Well, in and of itself, that doesn't concern me. I think 
it's probably the, the fact that enrollments didn't take a hit at the graduate level is probably due to the fact that more graduate programs could nimbly switch or were already doing uh, online or remote teaching. What's concerning about it is the differential impact on undergraduate uh, uh, studies. We know that pursuing a college degree uh, is really important both for the economic well-being of students. There's a, a huge differential between the earning potential of, of college grads, especially, especially grads with bachelor's degrees and those who don't have it. Um, but we also know that there are um, dis- differences across a whole bunch of indicators. College grads tend to have more healthy indicators. They're more civically engaged. Uh, mm. there, there are a lot of both personal and public, not only economic benefits to pre- being able to pursue an undergraduate degree. So the fact that that was harder in the pandemic and it was especially harder for low-income, first-gen, working-class students means that that um, we're increasing the divisions between haves and have-nots educationally. That widening economic gap. Mm-hmm. We're talking with David Scobie, director of Bringing Theory to Practice, a national initiative to renew the core purpose of undergraduate education. Falon Sarnez, vice president of enrollment management at Whittier College in Southern California in Whittier. And... Uh, We're talking with you, our listeners, about declining college enrollment rates. And I'm curious if you'd like to join the conversation. First, have you delayed or decided against enrolling in college this past year? If so, why? Uh, What questions do you have about the process, what's happening with colleges right now? Are you yourself reevaluating the value of a college education? Curious to hear your thoughts at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email them to forum at kqed.org or ask your questions or post your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. We'll have more after the break. This is Mina. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. California colleges and universities saw a big drop in enrollments this past spring at a time when many administrators were hoping students who had held off enrolling in the fall last fall would come back in the spring. And so we're talking about what the broader impacts of that are and why it's happening with David Scobie of Bringing Theory to Practice, which works on trying to renew the core purpose of undergraduate education nationally. And Falon Serna, Vice President for Enrollment Management at Whittier College. You, are listeners, are with us telling us about your views of enrolling in college, whether you decided to delay or against going this past year, what questions you have about what lies ahead for the state and the nation if there is a large proportion of people who will not be attending soon. I also want to uh, invite Lynn Mahoney into the conversation, president of San Francisco State University. Lynn Mahoney, so glad to have you here. 
Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you was because, interestingly, it sounded like the picture for California State University students uh, was a little bit more mixed and a little bit more positive, say, than in small private schools or for community colleges, which is that overall CSU sounded like it actually saw record high uh, overall enrollment, though a lot of basically first-time or freshman enrollment dropping off. Can you talk about what you saw at SF State? So the, the story for the CSU as a whole was actually quite good. Our, our enrollments last year were up about a percent. And uh, for example, Fresno State in the Central Valley had, I think, its largest freshman class to date. So, uh, But there were differences across the state. And in particular here in Northern California, in the Bay Area, we did see the kind of declines uh, that Whittier saw, for example. And, and some of that, I think, so at San Francisco State, our freshman class was down about 25% for the fall of mm. 20. And um, I think that's a function of San Francisco as a destination city or a destination campus. And so we saw the greatest drop off in students coming from Southern California. You know, why, why make the, um, why come up if you have to be virtual? So uh, we did see a decline. We also saw a decline in transfer students, but interestingly, we saw the transfer students rebound in spring. So we had one of our biggest springs and the numbers for fall, while still a little lower than we would like, are, are pretty good. Uh, our freshman class is going to be up about 20 percent and our transfer is about 14 percent. But the, but the community college numbers are worrying because that's, a, um, you know, one of our, our strongest missions is serving the California community college system. So that remains a concern. And weren't your transfer students from community colleges too? Or? Exactly. The vast majority come from California community colleges. So when we see numbers like a 15% decline, we, we get anxious. I, I do wonder, and this um, echoes what David Scobie was talking about, there are different kinds of community college students and they're the, the very non-traditional who are pursuing certificates and workforce development. And so what we, I don't know yet, is where that drop-off was. Is it in those students who don't typically come to a, a CSU or a UC, or was it in the students who typically do transfer? Um, I believe it's a, a lot in the non-traditional group that, that uh, um, Dr. Scobie was discussing, and that's worrisome for all sorts of equity and social mobility reasons as well. How concerned are you about students who have decided to take, say, a semester off or a year off not returning? Um, so I, I, uh, I actually had a, an op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle in about April or so, April or May of, of 2020, imploring CSU students not to do that. The, the, the gap year is a luxury of the affluent. The student who gets into Stanford can take a gap year and then come back. But when you're talking about the kinds of students that the CSU serves and Whittier College serves, a, a pause could be permanent. So I do worry about those students, and I, uh, I, I have seen efforts across the CSU to try and woo those students back to make sure that that one lost year is not a lost opportunity. But I think, uh, and, I, and I think we heard this from all the speakers th this morning so far, we're all worried about the long-term equity consequences of the pandemic. Why could a pause be permanent? I, I think I know what you mean, but if you could just give a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, our students, um, most of them work. Uh, they'll get they, they, they'll they'll take an opportunity to work for Amazon and then they get, um, you know, they, they've got a, a full time income. They've got health benefits. It makes it harder to make that break and then return to school. 
uh, or their uh, family circumstances are the first in their family to go to school. And so there's already pressure to work and not go to school. And so the, the, the longer they stay away from higher education, the harder it is for many to return. Hmm. So what Lena, are, might, uh, yeah. might I uh, piggyback on Please, what Lena said? Uh, I think uh, just to second what she said about the importance. Oh, of, I'm sorry. Uh, is this David Scobie? Yes, it is. <laughs> Go ahead, David Scobie. Uh, uh, to second the importance of that kind of continuity, um, we know that academic success and the, the, the meaningfulness of college education really depends on rich relationships, both with teachers and mentors and with peers. Uh, and that's just harder to sustain when students are stopping in and out, when they're swirling, uh, as it's called. So in addition to the economic factors, Lynn said, great education, and with that, the more likelihood of success for students, especially first-gen and low-income students, is made much harder when they're dropping in and out. The conditions of of being invested in their learning uh, and, and development are harder. Well, Nancy writes, my niece had a distant high school graduation last year and did go to college and lived in the dorms. She almost didn't go back for spring. The whole experience was so weird and unpleasant that we fear she won't want to go back. Her entire college, college education is at risk and she doesn't know what else to do. Falon Serna, curious if you had heard about this experience as well, where people did enroll, but because it was an experience that maybe did not feel very complete or rich because of the pandemic, ended up really questioning whether or not they wanted to come back. And then also curious if you have any advice for Nancy, who's wondering what else she can do for uh, Nancy's niece. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not only at our campus, but, you know, at, at campuses around the country, situations were less than ideal. Um, we, we weren't one of the schools that were able to um, have any students on campus, but um, even even in those situations, like what, what Nancy's, I think, daughter's going through, it, 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 I, I've heard that many students felt like it was a distant experience. And I, I would just say, stress to her that it was an anomaly you know this, this was not normal mm. not ideal conditions for for anyone and you know as things are opening up and 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 we're resuming you know we're really looking at campuses around the country and Whittier in particular we're really working hard to make sure that we could bring back the experience that students uh whether they're returning or new students um are, are looking for uh, you know when they come to a place like Whittier or what students are expecting when they go to SF State um you know it, it's 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 trying to get back to resume some sense of normalcy and um you know, I, I'm optimistic that that students are, um, you know, ready for that and looking forward to it. I mean, you know, we we're, we're already seeing that excitement from new students. I think that is playing in part why we're seeing a better year than we had in the previous year. So I, I would just, you know, stress that last year was was not ideal. And for many of us, it, it caught us off guard. I mean, that was the other thing, too. You know, a, a lot of um, D David mentioned why some of the graduate programs may have had some initial success because they were already set up to operate in this virtual distant space. You know, many of us, that that's not what we were set up to 
do. And, you know, I, I can speak for Whittier. I think we did a great job of pivoting to the virtual space and trying to make it as, as intimate and, 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 you know, uh, offer the same quality academics that we always do. Um, but it, it's not a typical year. And, and some of the things did not translate as well. And, and we understand that. And so I, I would just stress that this was an anomalous year and uh, to look forward to, to kind of resuming some normalcy for next year. Well, this listener is writing about a grad experience. This listener writes, I regret enrolling in grad school during the pandemic right after my undergrad. The faculty and staff were unprepared this year with little to no support provided during this hard time to make the experience worthwhile for students. When faculty got COVID, zero meaningful work was done to ensure that students got the intellectual support that they are paying for. I feel like the money students paid for tuition was wasted. Lynn Mahoney, I'm curious what your plans are at SF State to be able to offer in-person courses and an experience that uh, students will want to pay for, I guess. Yeah, our, our situation is a little different than Whittier in the sense that you know, the majority of our students are commuter students. Uh, and uh, the cost of living in San Francisco needs no explaining. And so our students travel great distances. It is not uncommon for us to have students who spend two to three hours a day on public transportation to get here. And so they have actually, we surveyed them in the spring and they actually, uh, about half of them said, we would like to stay virtual for the fall. And so what we've tried to do, uh, that's different from our, 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 our incoming freshmen, 91% or so indicated they wanna be face-to-face. -face. So we have enabled our freshmen to come back and we've prioritized programs in the arts and engineering and laboratory sciences. But um, many of our students, including our graduate students, actually like the flexibility that virtual gave them. So um, this fall will be about half and half. Um, and in the spring, we'll be much closer to, I'm going to put normal in quotes, but I think long term, we're going to have many more online classes for the kinds of non-traditional students that David talked about, or even for our traditional age students who have you know, jobs working 20 hours a week. The ability to have one asynchronous virtual class actually helps their scheduling and their balance. So we will never go back to the 98% in person that we were. I don't know where we'll land yet. That's going to be our exercise for this year with our faculty and our students. But we had to create a more flexible schedule to accommodate both students who want to be face-to-face -face and students who still need virtual learning for the fall. Wow. So David Scobie, I feel like what Lynn Mahoney is describing here to some degree is also a reimagining of the college experience to some extent. Do you Are those conversations happening, especially with... I mean, there were pre-pandemic issues that colleges were facing, but but really um, exacerbated by the pandemic. I think uh, those conversations are happening all over the country. And to my ear, what you're hearing from Lynn and also Falone is the diversity of different students' needs and different students' responses. There's, there is no one story about students' needs uh, and aspirations. And in that sense, the nimbleness uh, with which higher ed um, uh, went, went to remote gave a, a, a set a kind of flexibility and a set of options that, that Lynn has just been describing. Um, I think the key underlying question for me is whether students study remotely or face-to-face -face, uh, and whether they want more remote or more hybrid or more face-to-face they need thick relationships with teachers and mentors. They need a sense of community with students. Uh, 
Um, and I, I think that's why, although different students had different responses to going remote, it seems pretty clear that the majority were, were longing for some kind of face-to-face sense of community uh, and presence. Um, so Nancy's niece, I think, was uh, part of the story, but, but a bit of an outlier. Um, and I think the key thing is whatever students want and whatever institutions can offer, uh, it do so in ways that, that build really rich relationships and, and a sense of community for students. That's the secret sauce to, to learning and to success. Remember, again, we're talking about declining college enrollment rates, and you can join the conversation at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Are you one of the students who decided to delay or not enroll in college this past year? Will you come back in the fall? Do you think students will come back in the fall at rates that we had seen prior to the pandemic? Are you reevaluating whether the cost of college is worth it? Uh, Let me go to caller DJ in Los Altos. Hi, DJ. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Uh, So I have two, three quick comments. One is that there should be a national state policy about education. We are giving trillions of dollars for lots of things, and we have to have at least a higher education paid in this country. Otherwise, we will continue to depend on foreign students, foreign workers. That has to stop in the next 10, 15 years. The second thing is not emphasized in this country about the parents getting involved. There is no, There should be no option any American kids not going to the college. You cannot even think of these things in China and India. So how can such a rich country cannot afford to do this? Um, Third thing is that foreign students, because these foreign students, most of them come from a very rich, wealthy families, they get admissions here, and our kids don't get admission. And so there should be some policy on that. These well, are my three... Uh, yeah, and well, I think no politician discussed that. I never heard a discussion on the presidential election, the state election. Well, DJ, um, thank you for raising important. your th- three points. And I do want to discuss them and get some thoughts around them. Though quickly, I do first want to bring in another guest, Laura Zabo-Kubitz, a California Affordability sure. Program Director at the Institute for College Access and Success, which is an organization that promotes affordability, accountability, and equity in higher education. Laura Zabo-Kubitz, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, DJ raised the affordability question a little bit. We can get into the role that foreign students play in that a little bit later. But first, I do want to talk with you just about the cost of college generally and and to talk about the picture for community colleges a little bit more, because I know that's one area that you have been focused on and concerned about. And that, as we brought up previously, has seen very significant declines in California. You're talking about 116 community colleges in the state that have seen, it's, it varies in terms of the estimates, but maybe close to a double digit decline this past year. At a time when community colleges typically would see increases in enrollment, which is during economic downturn. So can you first explain what has been happening at the community college level and what concerns you have about it? Sure. Um, So first of all, uh, the community colleges serve two-thirds of California's college students, and the majority of 
our low-income college students and students of color. We know that the effects of the pandemic have had a disproportionate negative impact on our most vulnerable Californians. And so, you know, that ranges from um, reduced work hours, losing their jobs, um, being in frontline jobs where they're more likely to be exposed to COVID-19, having to um, having children and needing to help school them at home. And so I think that um, part of that decline can be attributed to the fact that those students have uh, many responsibilities that may um, essentially, you know, force them out of, of attending school, um, you know, when they have so much on their plate. You know, as far as college affordability, you know, it has long been a struggle for, for many college students in the state across all types of colleges. Um, but, you know, it's a real issue at community colleges. And it, it's, you know, sort of counterintuitive um, because our community colleges have the lowest fees in the nation. However, when you look at total college costs, housing, food, folks and supplies, transportation, childcare, our uh, fees and tuition only make up 5% of the total college costs. And that paired with the fact that California's community college students receive disproportionately smaller financial aid packages means that community college can actually be more expensive for a low-income student than for their peers at uh, four-year universities. Ah, that is somewhat counterintuitive. So then what about whether or not community college enrollment will rebound? This is one area that is a big concern. We just have 30 seconds before the break, Laura Zabokubitz. Sure. What your, what's your sense on that? I really hope so. I mean, I know there's a lot of efforts involved to re-engage students. I do think one area of particular importance is making sure they have the financial supports. Right now, there are several budget proposals on the table to strengthen the state Cal Grant program by removing age barriers and increasing the amount for non-tuition costs. And so I think that those could go a long way in helping students get the financial aid they need to not just enroll, but, but um, complete successfully. Well, we'll have more with you, Laura Zabokubitz, after the break, also with David Scobie, Lynn Mahoney, and Falon Serna as we talk about declining college enrollment numbers and what to do about it. So stay with us, listeners. This is Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Falon Serna, Vice President for Enrollment Management at Whittier College, a private college in Southern California. David Scobie, Director of Bringing Theory to Practice, a national initiative that works to renew the core purpose of undergraduate education. Lynn Mahoney is with us, President of San Francisco State University. And Laura Zabokubitz, California Affordability Program Director at the Institute for College Access and Success. We're looking at the declining college enrollment rates this past year and concerns about whether they will 
persist. And you can call us to join the conversation at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Beth writes, why is there such a push to have kids go to college where they spend years paying off the debt after graduating or working a job unrelated to their major? Many students would do better if we brought back trade schools, which were the norm years ago, where you could learn a trade that paid well and gave you no debt. Uh, it's an interesting point, Lynn Mahoney. I was wondering if you were interested in responding to Beth's comment in light of also hearing earlier from the caller DJ who was saying that you know college should be something that everybody does and is concerned about affordability with regard to any pressures put on by foreign students. Question, and I appreciate the, the caller's question uh, that, that we get asked often. And, and I, have, I have several responses. The first is that a California State University degree, um, it costs about $7,000 a year in tuition. Housing room and board uh, are obviously extra, but many of our students live at home with their families. So it really is um, a highly attainable, affordable degree. But let me address the bigger question, why college? And, and I agree, uh, it's not for everyone. And I do wish that we had um, a, a more routes to a successful economic future than through a college degree. But, you know, 70 to 80% of jobs require a college degree and, and the skills, and I know I'm looking at David Scobie and, his, and thinking about his work, the skills you learn in college are not trade skills. Um, I don't know what the latest data is, but at least a few years ago, people can expect to have five to seven careers over their lifetime. There is no way you can prepare for that um, with one a certificate program in a trade. And so what we work hard on doing is developing the kinds of skills that are transferable as people explore careers. Uh, and, and then the, the economic data proves this out. College degree bearers will earn millions more over their lifetime, have far less underemployment and unemployment. And so the economic benefits of a college degree, I think, are still um, clear and, 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 and you can't argue with them. Um, the cost of college is second question. And, and that's why I'm, I'm, I you know, have to give, keep giving a plug for the California State University system. We are, I think, models of affordability and access. Well, the other thing, too, is that the state right now is making a big investment, as I understand, especially in its most recent budget proposal in higher education because it does feel it sounds like that this is the engine for meeting the needs of california going forward i wanted to ask you laura zabo cubits uh, if you could just talk a little bit about that state investment and what the broader impact you see uh, if there is this decline in enrollment in terms of meeting the needs of california for example the job skills needed in california yeah, so, you know, there are um, really historic um, investments on the table right now during ongoing uh, budget negotiations, both in terms of uh, uh, financial aid, also addressing the underlying cost drivers for college students like affordable housing, tech, uh, technology and textbooks, uh, et cetera. And, you know, I think that we, you know, what we're really, uh, what the pandemic is really amplifying are the disproportionate impacts on our Californians of color. Um, you know, we know that our lowest income Californians, we know um, that even before the pandemic hit, it was the lowest income students who were facing the, um, the greatest financial burdens. In fact, that um, CSU and UC, while compared to the rest of the nation, um, loan, 
loan balances at graduation are relatively low. When we dig beneath those averages, we see that um, students of color and the lowest income students are disproportionately more likely to have borrowed. So the fact that there is a significant amount of money um, being negotiated, I think could go a long way in helping our students pay for not just tuition and fees, but really the non-tuition costs that enable them to be successful and to earn the degrees that they need to um, achieve their own upward mobility and also um, ensure that the, the state um, remains um, a, a robust um, economic player. Well, David Scobie, could you also talk about the broader impact of enrollment declines? Laura Zabokubitz is talking about making sure that California remains an economic player. Can you just talk about why it matters even just outside the realm of students, why it should matter to all of us? Well, I'd answer that in uh, in two ways. Uh, one is that it, it's a, it's from the point of view of the larger society, both the economy, but also our, our democratic community. Um, if people who want to go to college, who aspire to it, are not able to, there's just an enormous kind of shortfall in human creativity and, and human capital. Um, and my answer to the question about whether students should or shouldn't is neither that everyone should nor that we should only create a system to train people for jobs but that everyone who aspires to college should be able to go to college because mm -hmm. that is the way in which they see their full human flourishing uh, happening and, and we know that many more people want to get a college degree than are able to we know that for instance 80 percent of incoming community college students uh, tell us that that's not what they want to do at the end. It's not just to get their, their next job. They want to get a bachelor's or, or even a master's. So for me, in addition to the economic benefits of, to the student and the economic needs of the society, uh, expanding access to college is a matter of enabling uh, people to, to meet their aspirations for, for laying claim to their whole life. And when there's an enrollment decline because of both the economic crisis and COVID and also socioeconomic and racial inequities, we are losing their, the creative energies that college will help spark in those students. And we're depriving them of making themselves the authors of their life. Hmm. Well, Winston tweets, my experience as a philosophy major at UC Berkeley is that most enrollees were acting as trainees for their corporate business centers, business careers. They tended to evince zero intellectual curiosity. I doubt that the drop-off will lead to any damage to the academy. Antonio writes, we need folks who can do things with their hands. A very decent living can be made fixing things, sewer pumps, power lines, solar systems. And these people are in high demand, commanding decent salaries. College was right for me, a chemical engineer, but not right for my high school best friend and elevator mechanic. We both live full, impactful lives to the best of our ability. Let me go to Lisa in San Jose. Hi, Lisa. Oh, hi. Hi, thanks for coming. Um, I was just, oh, thank you. I was just calling because um, I, was, I am one of the CSU students. Uh, I go to CSU East Bay, non-traditional, um, my 30s. And so in the fall, I signed up. It was my first semester as a CSU student. I transferred from a California community college. And with that being my completely virtual and I stayed at home, it was extremely hard. I ended up dropping all five of my classes. 
Um, and my grandmother passed, not from COVID, oh, but um, I'm sorry. But I did um, just from that experience in the fall. I signed up again in the spring because I knew what to expect. Um, and also, I moved in the dorms because being at home was too chaotic for me to concentrate on so many classes. And I was able to finish four classes um, and with pretty good grades. So, I, yeah, that's that's yeah. my comment. Well, thanks, Lisa, for, for sharing that. I'm really glad to hear that. And I, I'm wondering, Lynn Mahoney, what are you seeing in terms of any indicators for a rebound in fall 21? Because people are adjusting and, and also wanting to try again if they had issues to begin with, like Lisa. First, I, I congratulate the student on making the return and doing well. Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful news. So we actually saw some markers of real positivity. Our retention numbers went up. Our freshmen in fall 20, fall 19 returned in greater numbers for fall 20 and the same with our second year students. So I, I do think there was, it got better as we went along, but we are seeing our numbers rebound. Our freshman class is up 20% or so from last fall. Um, they, they'll start enrolling in, in about two or three weeks and our transfer class is up about 14%. So I, we are seeing a rebound and I think um, the closer we get back to normal and the, fa and, uh, and the faster, um, the more we'll see students come back. Mm -hmm. they, they, I, I'll tell you what was positive for me. I would have been heartbroken if we moved virtual and every student said, this is perfect. Um, you know, I've, I've devoted my camp, my, 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 uh, my career to creating rich campus intellectual and social experiences. And I'm happy to say they dreadfully missed them. So I, I, I think the close, the faster we get back to normal, the better it'll be for all of California students. Valancerna, what are you seeing? Because there is going to be support for public colleges. Of course, that's not going to necessarily go to your small private school. What are you seeing in terms of indicators potentially for fall 21? And what do you feel like the future looks like for small private colleges like yours? Yeah, first off, I do I do want to piggyback on part of the topic we spoke on earlier about affordability. Um, while schools like Whittier typically carry a, a hefty sticker price, as they say, um, there's also great you know financial support provided by institutions like Whittier. Um, certainly, you know, at the end of it, you know, may may a student walk away with uh, with a little bit more debt than if they went to their you know local public school. That could be the case, but um, I mean, for instance, students at Whittier typically finish on average with a four year indebtedness in the mid twenties, and um, considering our tuition is is you know just under fifty thousand a year, I think that that goes to show the type of financial support, in particular for our lower income students, um, you know, we we believe we give we give great support. So I, I would I would tell folks not to be scared off of the sticker price of places like Whittier College or any of the other great private schools out there. Um, it's not always going to work out, certainly, but um, you know, on an individual basis, if you're admitted, you can work with those institutions um, to see if you can get those financial barriers lowered. And um, like Lynn and like San Francisco State, Whittier actually experienced one of our stronger um, retentions from fall to spring um, in, in the past few years. And again, I think that speaks to the commitment that our institution and our faculty made to ensure, to try their best to ensure that our virtual experience 
experience? Was all of those things that David said students are looking for? It's not just about the academic experience, but students are looking for community. They're looking to make meaningful relationships with the faculty, with their peers. And um, as best as we could, we, we can pull that off. Again, not everything translated neatly, um, but, um, but, but we, we were able to, you know, still give a great academic experience. And, and I, and I want to say that um, we've been pretty proactive in communicating with our students what our plans are going to be throughout this pandemic. And um, we, we told students we were working towards getting back to that in-person experience. And so, um, as Lynn said earlier, we were really trying to discourage students from delaying their education because we know it's hard to get students back once they've taken that time off, you know, and letting them know that we're, we're working towards getting back to the on-campus um, in-person experience that they were expecting at Whittier. And there's definitely, you know, with our population, while some of them did appreciate the flexibility that came with the virtual space, our students were clamoring to get back in person on campus. I mean, as a caller just demonstrated, you know, the the virtual space brings a number of um, potential inequity issues. You know, if someone's not in a home environment that's conducive to learning, if they don't have reliable internet, um, if they don't have reliable technology, all those things that they would get if they're back on campus. And so, as David said, different students have different um, needs and, 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 you know, that's why it's great that we have a number of options from San Francisco State to Whittier to the great community colleges for students to to meet those academic needs. We're talking about the future of college enrollment rates, and you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Abraham in San Francisco. Hi, Abraham. Hello. How are you? Um, I was. This is the question that, that I wanted to address to the the other lady that spoke about college and being eighty uh, percent. You know, what uh, help helping students graduate and when they graduate they automatically gonna get a job way more than a trade i beg to differ of that because i've I been i have I had a master's degree from the university of phoenix and i've been going to school here i've never i've never made a job that pays me the amount of money that they, they say that my master's degree requires another thing is i'm in debt so i'm trying to go back to school now and get a phd because you know the job that I thought was out there is, is run by computers now. So, I mean, I don't mm. know, you know, it's yeah. hurting me, you know, a lot. So everybody be saying, you know, go to school, get a degree. It's going to help you. Sure. But, it, you know, the question is, are you going to get the job? That's the question. Yeah. Abraham, you know? I'm, I'm sorry to hear that's been your experience. You said that you went to the University of Phoenix. Yeah, right here, right here in Oakland. Well, let me, um, let me, you, I know you wanted to get Lynn Mahoney on this, but I'm also just curious to get Laura Zabo-Cubitz on this as well. Could you respond to Abraham's experience and concerns? Yeah, um, you know, his um, experiences are ones we've certainly um, heard and actually another arm of our organization focuses on in terms of making sure that um, our students are getting quality um, degrees that um, actually pay uh, what they're advertised. And so, you know, we're working really hard in terms of something called gainful employment. Um, I just want to acknowledge his experience. I'm really sorry that um, that that's happening. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we're providing high quality degrees um, that deliver on what they promise. Lynn Mahoney, any reaction to Abraham? You know, I, I, I again, share Laura's um uh, you know, apologies that that happened to you, Abraham. Uh, l- let me say that I, I do think that higher education has to do a better job of aligning its degrees with career opportunities. There's no doubt about it. Um, that being said, uh, there are institutions 
in which students do rack up significant amounts of student debt and uh, the job outcome may not be what they looked for. So I do, I would be wonderful to see, I think what Laura was suggesting, some kind of national database where we could actually track that kind of information like we track graduation rates. But um, I do think that higher education could improve its alignment between its academic offerings and career opportunities. Well, Kathleen writes, I'm an SFSU graduate, a public school teacher for 25 years. Our society needs to understand that an educated population is necessary for a functional democracy. If we truly desire a just and fair society where science is valued and debate is based on reality, we need to elect representatives who agree. David Scobie, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I just want to ask you, since you look at the national picture, are you optimistic? Um, well, first, let me say amen to what the, the last uh, writer in just said. Uh, education for a robust democracy is as important as all of the economic benefits. Right. And, and we, I should clarify, I, I appreciate you saying that. And thank you, Kathleen. Yes. But I guess, you know, we have this declining birth rate situation. Is there a correction that may need to happen in the college space? Or do you think that really the students are out there and we just need to make sure we're making it possible for them to access this? So I would say uh, um, we are in crisis. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of creative energies and successful innovations to meet that crisis. So I am in the end optimistic, not because the problems we've been discussing aren't huge, but because I, I don't think we're, we're defenseless or passive in, in the face of them as educators. Uh, and I think one of the keys to answer your last question about demographic change and birth rates uh, is that that non-traditional majority that we began by talking about, um, which also wants uh, civic participation and laying claim to their life and economic security, that is one of the keys to change. That's a, a huge part of the population that aspires to, to, uh, to learning and, and uh, deserves it. Well, Brandon writes that his daughter was accepted into Whittier and other schools, and we're opting to give it some time to see how things play out. That feels like a sum up of what a lot of people are doing. Falon Serna, David Scobie, Lynn Mahoney, and Laura, Laura Zabo-Cubitz. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks to Blanca Torres for producing our segment, and thanks for listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.